Wow, John 17. Uh, what is known as the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is the longest prayer in the New Testament. It's the longest prayer. It's actually the Lord's prayer, if you want to look at it in that sense. Now, in, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, we see the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, you know, all that. Uh, that is actually the disciples' prayer. The disciples had come to Jesus and said, tell us, Lord, Teach us how to pray. And he said, well, pray like this. And then he goes into, in verses 9 through 13 in Matthew there, and goes into, this is a pattern for how to pray. It was not intended to be the Lord's prayer. It was intended to be the disciples' prayer and Jesus teaching them. This, in John chapter 17, the entire chapter is Jesus' prayer. And and he hits the ground running in this thing. He, it, the first five verses we're going to cover this morning, we're going to look at what it is for him to be praying for the glory of God to fall on him and for his Father to be glorified, for him to be glorified. And what does that mean? What does the word glory mean? It's a very churchy word. Wouldn't you agree? That It's one of those words that we can say it so much, we can hear it so much. It's a major theme in the word of God. Because God is about his own glory. And he's not, he does not like it when we want to try to generate glory for ourselves. He's jealous about that. He says, no, that's mine. And he does share his glory with us. And, and, and we could look at that. I'm not going to get there. Uh, in the book of Romans, it talks about that. But truly, the glory of God is something that I think is largely misunderstood and misapplied in the church. And so we're going to take a look at what it means and what God's glory is, the magnificence of his glory, and why it was so important to Jesus to be able to share with his men and to be praying in the context of John 17 for the glory of God to come. Uh, it's interesting because we, we, when we look at the, the, the disciples' prayer in Matthew, we see many of the same things in this prayer in John 17. It repeat, repeatedly, Jesus directs this prayer to the Father. And remember that other prayer, the one in Matthew starts with our Father who is in heaven. And so there are parallels in this. Another is he gives recognition of and concern for God's name. Uh, another is it shows concern for the work and for the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It also shows concern for his followers to keep from evil. And Jesus gets to that very clearly uh, in the middle section in this. This is divided into three sections. But I want to just share with you, there is something very different in this prayer than the one in Matthew. Uh, Jesus didn't pray just as he told his disciples to pray. He prays differently. The requests of Jesus in John 17 are clearly not the prayer of an inferior to a superior. Understand what I mean? When we pray, we are definitely inferior to God, and we are praying to a superior being. Jesus doesn't do that. It's constantly seen in this prayer in John 17, the co-equality between the Father and the Son, because they are the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the triune God, co-equal. One God, three persons. Don't understand it, but that you don't understand it doesn't mean it isn't true. Um. The two have one mind. As the son speaks, he's not speaking or seeking to, he's not wanting to bend the father's will to his own. Rather, he's voicing and expressing the plan and the purposes of the triune God. And so he's revealing this prayer. This prayer is to the father from the son in the hearing of his disciples. And it's a powerful, powerful prayer. But before we get to that, I want to look back briefly. When we ended chapter 16, we ended Jesus' ministry to his men. We looked at the first 12 chapters in the Gospel of John as his public ministry, as he is there revealing himself, revealing, again, the plan, the purposes of God to the world at large. And then when we began in chapter 13, Jesus gets alone with his men in this last five hours, this last night of his earthly life, the darkest hours of his life. And he gets alone with his men to begin to reveal the kingdom of God to them and his plans and his purposes specifically for them and the church as well. So 
uh, it's interesting. I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this message. I just started thinking about 1 Corinthians 14. In verse 3, the Apostle Paul, decades later, decades after these things took place, would write about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, and one of the gifts he's speaking of is the gift of prophecy, or to prophesy, it means to speak forth from God. And we know that Jesus was the perfect man and that as he spoke, he spoke the words of God. We've looked at that many times, I mean, with power. And so in John 14, verse 3, Paul says, But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And I started to overlay that with this last five hours with this upper room discourse that we've seen with Jesus. And I began to see how perfectly these things fit. Uh, in chapter 13, verses 1 to 17, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he was building them up. That's what edification means. It means to build up. An edifice is a building. So to edify is to build up. And he's spending this time, this time with his men, to build them up, to equip them for what they were going to face on the other side of the cross because it wasn't going to be pretty. It was going to be the most difficult time of their lives, and yet they would stick to it largely because of the, the things that he has to share with them here. Because he's very clear that he doesn't want them to be made to stumble when the persecution comes, when, when all of the heat that he had been taking for these last three and a half years, when that shifts onto them because he's no longer physically with them. And so, uh, and then in verses uh, 18 to 30 in chapter 13, uh, he predicts Judas's betrayal. He's actually giving these guys insight uh, and then he commands them at the end of the chapter to love one another. In, in chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, Jesus, again, being about the glory of God, says this. He says, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Six times in two verses, Jesus uses this term glorified in chapter 13. What's he talking about? Hopefully by the time we leave here this morning, we'll have a better idea, a better grasp. Uh, and then finally, as chapter 13 wraps up, Jesus predicts uh, Peter's denials, that he would deny him three times. Chapter 14, Jesus gives comfort and instruction. Edification, exhortation, comfort. Uh, verses 1 to 4, he talks about the return of the Son. In my Father's house, there are many mansions, many dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And after I've done that, I will come back for you and receive you unto myself. Great promises, great assurances for you and I that he's not left us alone in this world to fight these battles ourselves. There's times where it feels like that, isn't there? There have been times during this move where I felt like, Lord, this is never going to end. We're just never going to end. You know, and I, I, I could start to just kind of spin on that. And, and yet the Lord just continued to ground me with, John, I've got this. You need to represent me well. And just let me handle it. And, and it's, been, it's been tough. Uh, we go through stuff. Uh, I know people in this room going through a lot more difficulty than that. Uh, thinking of Woody and his son and, and all. And, and so in the verses 5 through 14 in chapter 14, uh, Philip, he comes to Jesus and says, well, show us the Father. Remember that? And Jesus said, Philip, have you been with me so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That, and we talked about how in Hebrews 1 that, that Jesus is the radiance of his, what, glory. And the, represent, the, exact, the exact representation of his nature. Uh, and then Jesus begins to give these guys the assurance because remember they'd come into this whole deal that night thinking that they were going on to be elevated in his kingdom as Jesus would uh, begin to establish his kingdom and throw off Rome and all. They came in with that idea in mind, actually arguing number, a number of times between themselves who was the greatest. And who was going to get the best seat? Who was going to have the best office? You know, kind of thing. And, 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 and when he starts in chapter 13 to say, look, I'm going away. I'm leaving. Uh, they're absolutely blown away. They don't understand. They, they're not connecting the dots. They couldn't. They had no point of reference at this point. 
And yet Jesus begins to tell them in chapter 14 that he's going to send the helper. He won't leave them as orphans, that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And that they would be comforted, that they would be equipped, that they would be uh, built up by the working of the Holy Spirit. Finally, in, in chapter 14, Jesus says, come, let us go from here at the end of uh, chapter th- or 1431, where uh, we don't know where he went from that point. Uh, I've, I've shared with you guys that I, I think it makes sense that he went up on the roof because immediately he begins to talk about vine and vine dresser and all that. And, and the roof would have had a trellis over it with new growth from the vineyard that, or the vines that they grew for shade. And, and it would have been the full moon with Passover being there because Passover is held on a full moon. It would have been a brightly lit night. Uh, but he may have just walked through the city. He may have, uh, in 15, uh, he starts uh, talking about the vine and the branches. I'm the vine, you're the branches. My father's the vine dresser. If you were with us, you remember the importance of that. He's saying, your nourishment is going to flow from me. You're not, it just doesn't go backwards, guys. I mean, how many times do we try to get in a posture, or, or I, I've seen in, in subtle ways in my life where I'll take a posture of, I'm going to sort of get, God to follow my plan, and it doesn't work that way. We identify what his plan is. We identify what he wants to do in our hearts and our lives. And then we get on board with that because he is the vine. We are the branches. The branches are supported by the vine. They don't support the vine. They are supported by. And and then he goes on and talks about his father being the vine dresser and pruning, pruning us for our good. I shared with you guys in my old Bible college Bible in the margin, it says clip, 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 because that's what God does. He's constantly pruning. He's constantly conforming us to the image of his son. What a beautiful process and often painful one. And yet that's what he does. That's how the vine dresser works. In chapter 15, again, we see Jesus warning them about the hatred of the world. And I don't know about you, but it's out there all over the place. I was sharing with somebody, we were in the McDonald's drive through line. Day before yesterday, we, we have our grandkids with us, uh, and, and we were taking them ice skating. And on the way back, we stopped to get a little snack. And 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 we're, we're literally at the you know, little speaker thing, and, and this guy behind us is like revving up his motor and Pretty soon he honks his horn, and I'm thinking, my goodness, it's a drive-through. <laughs> Pretty soon he whips that thing in reverse and backs up, and he whips over his one of the double drive-through thing, goes to the other one, and he's, boy, you know, he was really, and I'm like, this world is just spinning out of control. And we pulled up after we made our order, and he pulled up after us. <laughs> it made no difference whatsoever. But I was just reminded in that little moment of like the hostility of people. And it wasn't because we were Christian. They had no idea. But, but just how hostile people are. And, and, and you see that Jesus, he said, you know, in the last days, the love of many will wax cold. It will grow cold. People will be cold hearted with one another. And you see that expanding out there. And yet Jesus warns here. He says, it's going to happen. Those things are going to come. People are going to come against you just by virtue of the fact that you're a believer. And yet your reward in heaven is great, we see in Matthew. So uh, he talks more about the work of the Holy Spirit, and and we talked about that at length. Remember, we went for several weeks before we got to verse 1, and and (laughs) talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of you and I and every person who has chosen to believe to release their life to Christ. And, And the ministry being that he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and that he would... He would guide us into all truth. That The only reason you could understand any of this is if the Holy Spirit is inside of you, prompting you, going, yes, this is true. This is life. This is truth. This is where it's at. And then finally, that he would glorify me. And we talked about how so much of the shenanigans you see out there are not of the Holy Spirit because they don't look like Jesus. It doesn't look like Jesus when somebody's blowing gold dust through a heater vent. And people have their cell phones held up, filming it. I mean, it doesn't look like Jesus when you see, remember I was sharing about somebody taking his coat and sweeping it across the audience and everybody falls over, except for the guys that are supposed to catch him. And, you know, it's... it's <laughs> but 
you see so much out there. And yeah, we're going to get to John 17, but I, I think it's important here to recap, to, to, to understand, to encapsulate this night with these guys because Jesus is wrapping up his ministry to them. Uh, and so at the end of chapter 16, verses 17 to 33, Jesus speaks on grief. And he gives the promise that your sorrow will be turned to joy. In context here, he's saying, look, this is not going to look like it's going to end well. I don't want you to be blown away by that. I don't want you to be moved by that, men. I don't want your faith to fail when you see me go to that cross. Because there's a really good ending. There's a great ending just on the other side of that. And so he's saying, look, it's gonna, you're going to be confused. It's going to look really bad. But your sorrow will be turned to joy because he knew that death wouldn't hold him, that he would actually raise from, that he would resurrect, and they would see him in a very short time. Remember we looked at, in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then in a little while, you'll, remember we talked about the difference. He says the word see there, it means to visually see. And then in a little while, you will see me. And it's not the same word. And he says, in a little while, you'll see me no more. Physically, I will not be here. But, and then in a little while, You'll get it. I see. Yeah, okay. So, and that's where we ended up. That's where he ends up in this ministry with his men. Before we get into this, this great high priestly prayer, this, the, and, and, and a priest, you've got to understand, a priest in, in Old Testament times, the priests had a position. Their position was, here's God, here's me, here's the priest, Okay. The priest represented God to the people and represented the people to God. The high priest, we talked about that, on the Day of Atonement would go in and he would atone for the sins of the people. One day, once a year, he would actually go into the very presence of God after he had ceremonially cleansed himself, and he would go into that Holy of Holies and commune with God. And so in that sense, here, Jesus, the perfect man, he's going to intercede, he's going to represent us to the Father and the Father to us. And so that's why this is called the great high priestly prayer. It's not something that sets a pattern for us in the New Testament. Yes, we're a kingdom of priests in that sense, and I am the priest in my home insofar as I set the tone spiritually and all of that. But there is no need anymore because Hebrews tells us we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. He's not human. In the sense, he's yes, he's human, but he's not frail as a human. He's not a frail high priest. He is the perfect high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Oh, I could rabbit trail on that, and we'd be lost for the rest of the time. But the point is, is he's going to prayer for us. And, and it's, it's powerful. This, this prayer is just so powerful. He, here, in, in that sense, it's, it's as though he's at, in the Holy of Holies, him and the Father, that he has spent all of this time with his men, and now he directs his gaze upward as he begins to engage the Father in this prayer. In chapter 17, in the first five verses, which we'll look at, he prays with regard to glory, and we'll see that more as we go forward. In 6 to 19, he, he prays for the apostles. He prays for them, those whom the Father had given him. And, and in doing so, he's praying for those that were his. He, does, he says, I've not lost one. Make a good case for eternal security. But I also would encourage you, when it comes to that, I was sharing with somebody the other day that, uh, you know, my position is don't ask me about your eternal security. As for me, I'm secure eternally. And, and, uh, because each of us has to transact with God. On that basis, this isn't some club that we join. This is a relationship that we enter into. So he prays for safety. He prays for unity with his men, with his people. How important is that? We've looked at that in this time that he's had with his men. We've looked at the importance of joy. Why is the joy of the Lord my strength? Without his joy, they would be tossed by every circumstance they endured, and they would endure a lot. Every one of these guys, save the Apostle John, would die a violent death for their testimony of Christ. But they would not relent. This stuff is real. 
these things happening to them would be real, and Jesus knew it, and he's done his best to prepare them for it. In the last part of chapter 17, he prays for the church. Uh, and this is amazing. You and I come into view in a very remarkable way as Jesus lifts his eyes and his heart to the Father. And that's what he does here at the end of his discussion, of his equipping, exhortation, edification, and comfort to his men. Now, directing his gaze heavenward, we enter into chapter 17. I'm going to read the first five verses, and then we'll go back and unpack them a bit. Uh, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Wow, there's a lot there. So he begins this prayer speaking about glory. Uh, in verse 1, it says that he lifted his eyes up to heaven. Uh, in Interesting, if you remember, remember the, the sinner and the publican uh, when Jesus gives the example uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the publican is saying, oh, I'm glad I'm not like these people. And, oh, God, thank you for making me. Essentially, it was a very arrogant prayer. And, and then the sinner, uh, it says he lifted up his eyes towards heaven and he cried out, beating his chest, oh, God, have mercy on me. This is a common attitude of prayer in the first century. And, and yeah, we have traditions, clasp our hands, maybe that. I know I was taught when I was growing up that. And we have different things. It's like, and we close our eyes. Don't do that while you're driving. But, you know, it's like we have these different things that we attach to prayer. But I want to encourage you folks, prayer, it's an activity of the heart. And so when Jesus, with his eyes open, looked up towards heaven and started talking, that was a powerful prayer. And, and there are times that I don't close my eyes. I, a lot of times as I'm just wandering around the house or I'm in my study, working and studying and all that, it's, there's, it's just this wonderful dialogue through the agency of the Holy Spirit that, that we can have with the Lord. You've got to remember, this is not a monologue. This is a dialogue. And he calls us to a relationship with him. Uh, we were, interesting. We've had our grandkids, as I mentioned, visiting the last couple of days. And um, they're at an age that is just wonderful uh, to pour into them spiritually. And, and the Lord has been giving Stacy and I greater access to the spiritual aspect of their lives. And, and we have this sort of, now it's becoming kind of a, a routine, but they love it. I love it. And... Um, they get into bed at night. It's like 8.30, quarter to nine, and, and and they start screaming for Big Teddy. That's what they call me. And so I go, and we've got an air mattress set up in the living room, and I go and I flop down right between the two of them, and I try to squish their arms as I go because I'm a big guy. and Not to hurt them, but just go, stop, oh, Grandpa, you know, and all that. But But I'll start to talk with them. And we've been talking about prayer the last three nights, and it's just been a fun time and a really good time. I've just sensed the Lord's hand on it and just talking to these guys about this relationship, this beautiful relationship that we can have. And just talking about, well, you know, do you, do you talk back to your mommy when she talks to you? Yeah, well, God wants to talk to you, you know, and just going through. And it's just been a really fun time, but a really I believe, an anointed time for the Holy Spirit to begin to speak to their hearts in a profound way. And our grandson remembering back when he asked Jesus into his heart a couple of years ago, and our granddaughter being younger, she's not, not quite sure about all that, but she really wanted to pray last night. It's just been fun. And I just, you know, it's just a, a great time. And, and instructing them on prayer, it's not about our form in prayer, it's about our heart. And as we come to the Father, as we come and we lift up the concerns of our heart, whether they're small or they're very, very large, 
He delights in our coming to him. Uh, I just want to encourage you folks that if there's a pattern in prayer here, Jesus is looking right at the Father when he lifts up his eyes to heaven. Maybe not with his physical eyes, but with his heart. As an attitude of the heart, uh, he's communing with God. And that's what God wants. That's the essence of the relationship. We can't see him with the, our physical eyes, but we can sure see him with the eyes of our heart. And so Jesus also says here in verse 1, he says, The hour has come. And what he's talking about here is he's talking about his time is here. He's finished with his public ministry. He's finished with his ministry with his guys. And now as he shifts his focus to the Father, he's saying, my hour has come. It's time. This is the weightiest hour of his life. And it's not talking about a physical hour. It's talking about a period of time where now things are going to get kicked into high gear. Now he is staring directly at the cross. Everything else is out of the way. And it's him looking at being glorified. And we'll talk about that as we go through the cross. He's about to take the cup. Uh, if you remember, and, and now John doesn't go into a lot of detail in the garden. You'll notice in chapter 18 that Jesus shows up in the garden. Judas betrays him. He gets arrested. That's pretty, I mean, it's summarized, but that's how it goes. The other gospels, the synoptics, they go into great detail about Jesus' time in the garden, and we'll touch on that as we go through this. He's not yet in the garden because 18.1 says he crosses over the Kidron, which is a ravine between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. He crosses the Kidron and goes into the garden to pray. And so or it goes into the garden, and the other gospels pick it up there and give great detail on Jesus. And it, but uh, what he's talking about there is he is about to take the cup of the wrath of God. He, that wrath will be poured out without admixture. The word admixture meaning it is pure. It will not be watered down. Oh, well, that's my son. I'll just lighten up on the... No. He takes the full brunt of the wrath of God for you, for me, in that hour, at that time when he's on that cross. And he knows that's right in front of him. And so he is saying in the garden, he says, it's time for me to take the cup. And Father, if there's any other way, for you to accomplish this work of redemption that I'm about to do. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He, in Luke 22, 44, he says, In being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. The strain that he was under, I was looking at it in, in the original language. I have a Bible that's it's a, a very literal Greek uh, translation. And it said that he was strained to the point of dying. He was that stressed in the garden. He was that stressed as he prayed, stressing to the point where uh, there's a condition. It's called hematidrosis. Uh, and what that means is sweating drops of blood. It's an actual medical condition. Listen to this from WebMD. Doctors don't know exactly what triggers hematidrosis, in part because it's so rare. It does happen. They think it could be related to the body's fight-or-flight response. Think about that. I mean, that fight-or-flight thing, when it kicks in, I don't know if you've experienced, I have, and where you get a rush of adrenaline, your, I mean, your visual acuity sharpens, your heart races, you have more strength. Than, I mean, there's a whole physiological thing that comes about. Uh, he was so stressed that that's what happened. Uh, and, and the hour that he speaks of, that here in verse 1 is directly attached to glory. Consider the Son glorified in these things, the Father glorified by these things. Uh, the Hebrew word for glory is the word kabod. Remember a few weeks ago we looked at the Ark of the Covenant and its travels throughout Israel. When God, all he wanted was a place to dwell with his people and they were doing all these weird things and and at one point, Israel took the ark into battle against the Philistines, and, and they lost. And remember, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, the, they were creepy guys, and they took the ark off to this battle. They lost. They were killed. And Ichabod's wife, or I mean, um, uh, Phinehas' wife was so stressed by that that she went into labor. She had a baby, and she named the baby Ichabod. It's a play on words, meaning the glory of God has left Israel. 
And so the kabod, the glory of God, is that which descended on that tabernacle, on that Ark of the Covenant. That was the glory. The Shekinah glory is the, is the kabod of God. And it, 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 it's an interesting word. It implies heavy. Uh, remember back when I was a teenager, we go, whoa, man, that's heavy. Well, it's, yeah, I know I'm dating myself, but uh, bear with me. The point is, he's saying it's it's profound, it's deep. There's this this heaviness, and if we just looking at, I'm going to give you a biblical, or I mean a, a, a dictionary definition of the word glory here, uh, and it means to elevate. And when we look at the cross, Jesus was lifted up; he was glorified in that cross. But that's, I mean, that's a, this is a, this is from Webster's. This wasn't talking about the cross, but. It's interesting that that's part of the the definition. It means to make glorious by bestowing honor, greatness, praise, or admiration. It also means to light up brilliantly, brightness. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he speaks of glory, uh, of our glory in our in our resurrected bodies, he says they'll be different. They'll be different, just like the the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars. Uh, they vary in brightness, they vary in glory, but they're all heavenly bodies and will be recognizable, but will be different. And that's the parallel that he's drawing there. I'm not going to go into what I was taught that meant when I was in the Mormon church, but because it was really goofy. But the point is, is, is that it, this glory that, that, it is talking, that Jesus is talking about, he's talking about this brightness, this largeness, this bigger than life uh, thing that, that we see when we connect the glory of God to Jesus, that as he goes to the cross, it is for his glory. It is for the Father's glory. It is that they would be elevated in the hearts and minds of the people. Is that I would see that and that Jesus, the name of Jesus would be elevated, the name above every name. That's a statement of his glory. And that in that, I would be humbled to the point of seeing my need for him. That God would be glorified. Why would he be glorified? Because he didn't have to do any of it. We were lost. We were without hope. We are without any possibility of being able to save ourselves. And yet, Jesus, going to that cross, being glorified, being lifted up, being elevated, for us, it's a glorious thing. Hebrews 1, again, it, it talks about Jesus being the radiance of the Father's glory. Uh, I'm going to go into some passages that pertain to glory so that you can get a little better idea of, of how important this word is and, and what it means. In John chapter 7, remember when we were there at the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But as he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus' glory is synonymous with him being crucified, resurrected, and ascending to the Father. That's what his glory is. It's the, the glory that Jesus has, his being glorified, comes through his work at the cross, through death not being able to hold him, so him resurrecting from the dead, and then him returning to the Father, him going to be, to sit at the right hand of the throne on high. Now remember in John chapter 12, there were Greeks at the feast, the, uh, and, and they came to Philip, and Philip, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip go and they tell Jesus that these Greeks want to talk to them. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. 
And then he goes on, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's the same hour that he's talking about here in John 17. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. He has both glorified it by his life, and he will glorify it again through his death. That the Father's plan, the plan of redemption for you and I being carried out, is that which glorifies the Father and the Son. In Isaiah 6, we see a beautiful picture of the throne room of heaven and Isaiah being taken up. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, and each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As we consider the glory of God, I, I, I was reminded here, um, I was reminded of Psalm chapter 8, uh, he's, where David writes, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. I started kind of tripping on that yesterday. I, I, just to be honest with you, I, I just was just kind of blown away in my office and thinking about the glory of God and how he doesn't share his glory with us, but he wants us to recognize his glory. And that he sets his glory above the heavens. I'm going to show you some slides here. The first one, uh, uh, we're going to do a little astronomy lesson here. <clears throat> this is the solar system. That's our sun, and the planets lined up by size, starting with Jupiter and then Saturn and then uh, Venus and Mars and then Earth, uh, and then the little ones on beyond that, the small gas planets. It's, uh, the red arrow is pointing to Earth. But how large is the sun, really, when set up right next to the Earth? Slide two. That's what the Earth would look like set next to the sun. Uh, so... How large is the largest known star? The Earth next to the sun here, it's, the sun is 864,400 miles across. It's about 109 times the diameter of Earth. The sun weighs about 333,000 times as much as Earth. It's so large that about 1,300,000 planet Earths could fit inside of it. Just to give you an idea of scale, we're talking about the glory of God here. We're talking about the one who created all that is. And I don't know if this lights your fire. It sure lights mine because I love to look at these things and consider the, the greatness of God and to consider the glory of God. So uh, the third slide. So the sun's pretty big. And we see the, Now look at the dot. I don't know if you can see it there, but there's a little blue dot right there next to the sun. That's about the size of Earth compared. And, and so... Uh, how big is the sun compared to one of the leading candidates of being the largest known star? Uh, let's have a look at, at the star that's named U.Y. Scooty. <laughs> and that's U.Y. Uh, Scooty. It's a star. It's actually observable through binoculars, if you know where to look. There's a lot of stars out there. Uh, it's 9,500 light years away. So a light year is how long it would take you to travel. It would it, be... If you were going 186,000 miles per second and it took you a year traveling at that velocity, that's a light year. So 9,500. In other words, it's a really long ways away. All right. So uh, it's the largest observable star. And uh, the radius of U.S. Scooty is about 1,700 times larger than the sun's. It's 5 billion times the volume of the sun. Hard to, it starts to get kind of mind-blowing there. So when astronomers measure stars, they look at there's normal-sized stars, and, and our sun is about average. There are a lot that are smaller and a lot that are larger. But then they get into some of the, the, the larger stars. They call them a giant star. And then after that is a supergiant star. And after that is a hypergiant.
star. UI Scooty is a hypergiant. Okay, it's as big as they come. There are probably bigger ones out there because scientists haven't found them yet. There's some that they see in radio telescopes. This is the largest observable through an astronomy uh, or astronomical telescope. It's the largest star that's seen. So in slide five here, so I put the sun next to UI Scooty. And the sun being dwarfed is much, it's not much unlike the earth next to the sun. This is mind boggling to me. And slide six. So can you see what the sun is right there? All right, how about now, slide seven. All right, go to the center of the, the, the film, and you'll see a little black arrow just a little bit to the lower left of center. That would be our sun next to this star. Psalm 8, you set your glory above the heavens. So how large is the glory of God? How important is the glory of God? How important is that he be glorified in the sun, and the sun glorified through the cross. When I consider your heavens in Psalm 8, verse 3, says when, David says, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Uh, the writer to the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews chapter 2 quotes this, speaking of Jesus. Uh, who am I that you're mindful of me, Lord? I mean, when I look at the earth next to the sun, if you look at me next to the earth, very, very small. Look at the, the earth next to the sun, very, very small. Look at the sun next to you, UI Scooty. It, it just boggles the mind to think that God, being the creator of all that is, that he would focus on this little planet. And not just this little planet, but he would actually become and step into his creation and, and let his creation beat him up, mock him, scourge him, spit on him, punch him, put him on a cross, and murder him. It boggles the mind. It's as mind-boggling to think of the gospel in those terms as it is to look at these planets and stars. But that's the God with whom we have to do. And that's the size of his glory. He will be glorified. What's our response? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So our lives should be marked by glory, not for ourselves, but for wanting to bring glory to God. In all that we do, in all that we think, in all that we say. Do we always carry that off? No, of course not. And yet that's the goal. That's the directive. That's our heart in response to the glory of God and the glory that he's revealed in the cross and in the resurrection and in the ascension. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, okay, I remember back when I, I've shared with you guys before when, when I was... Uh, on my knees uh, at an Episcopal church back in the 90s. And uh, part of what our church did was clean the Episcopal church uh, so that we could use part of their facilities. That sounds familiar. And, um, and, and how the Lord spoke to my heart in that moment. He, and he said, John, I'm as pleased with you in this as I am Billy Graham filling football stadiums. And I wept. I literally wept. I was so moved. And I thought, Lord, I just want this to be for your glory. I'm not, nobody can see me cleaning this church. I had no idea I'd be, you know, 25 years sharing with you guys about. I'm not saying look at me at all. I'm just saying look at the Lord. Look at how he looks at us. He doesn't look at the big things only. It's not more important to him. What's important to him is that he is glorified. In our lives. I was here a couple of weeks ago. I was up by the studio with a broom in my hand. And I, I just shared with the ladies. I just felt excited because we're not doing this church cleaning thing. We're not doing it for man. We're not doing it for Red Hills Church. We're doing it for his glory. And what a great opportunity it is to be able to bring glory to our Father. I think about what happened at that building that we just finished up with. 
Man, we worked hard, didn't we? There were a lot of people doing a lot of work for a lot of days, and it seemed endless at times. But I'll tell you what, my heart was overjoyed when that guy put his hand out yesterday and said, man, good luck. Thank you for all you've done. They were blown away. They went in looking, and I'm convinced of this, and, and I think that they were going in thinking that maybe we just did kind of minimum to get by. And, and they saw how beautiful the paint job was in the bathrooms and in the hallways. And, and they saw how much work they had seen the floors after we hand scraped after you guys. I was in Seattle, but hand scraped them, 2,000 square feet or whatever it was, scraping that glue. And then they saw it after we had a contract. Come. And I just thought, you know what, Lord? It's true. This is all for your glory. Maybe this is all of the Jesus those people are going to see. And I know that our witness was preserved. I know that our testimony with them and in our community was preserved. And, and brothers and sisters, it was a lot of work, but it was worth every minute to see that outcome because God was glorified in it. Verse 2. <laughs> as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, have given is past tense. That is the tense here, that he should give the gift. Salvation is a gift. It's free. His glory is connected with giving, with gifting eternal life. That's how he's glorified. This is the plan of the ages. This is the focal point right here this night and the following day when he would go to that cross and especially three days from there on Sunday when he would raise from the dead. This is the focal point of all of human history. And the Father is seeing to it that he is glorified in the Son and the Son will be glorified through the events that are taking place. Providing an irrefutable proof that God is directly involved in human affairs that God directly connects with you, with me, that he loves the way he loves. As Jesus said in John chapter 3, that he would give his own gift, give his only son, that all you had to do is believe. Just believe that I did it for you and you're saved. Then, then you get to have this eternal life that he's talking about here. That's the heart of the gospel. And I don't know where you guys are all at this morning, but if there's anybody in here that is not... Uh, been and not, not done business with him at the cross, I want to encourage you. Give your life to Christ. Give him your heart. Give him all that you are. And do it for his glory. Your life will never be the same. Mine wasn't. I know many testimonies in here, people would say the same. My life was aimless. It was fruitless. I was wandering. I was lost. I was just in pain. I, I, I couldn't seem to get it right, and yet God touched my heart. And I responded. And he was glorified. And I have never been the same. That's the God we serve. That's the God that created these stars and planets and all. And yet I, I had our, our grandson up in my study last night. He was coming up to say they were going to bed, and it was time for Big Teddy. And, and he came up, and I said, come here, Evan, come here. And he came over to my computer monitor, and I just finished putting together these slides and, and had them you know, on the screen, and, and I explained everything that I just explained to you guys, and he was just like blown away. Really? He's like, yeah. And the most amazing thing about that, Evan, and, and brothers and sisters, the most amazing thing about that is he numbers the hair on my head, which aren't many, but he not counts them. He numbers them. There's a difference. That he is concerned with the affairs of my life. He's concerned with the hurts. He's concerned with the trials. He's concerned with the things that I go through. He loves me enough. He will shout as loudly as he needs to into my life to get my attention at times. But it's always because he loves me. And the end of it is it's for his glory. He loves it. There's, there's, the Bible tells us there's this joy in heaven with the angels over one sinner who repents. That's because it's for his glory. It's, that's because he wants to be seen. He wants to be seen as the one who holds our life in his hands. Praise God. 
verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. It's all about a relationship. Jesus is saying it here. It's not eternal life. You know, I remember sharing one time with, with uh, I had a classroom full of kids, and I said eternal life is not a whole bunch of days. They went, what? And I said, no, we don't. God doesn't measure time. He invented time. Eternal life is, is a state of being. It's, it's, it's when you are in his presence. And he says here, eternal life is that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know, when Jesus says Jesus Christ, it's the only time in all of God's word where Jesus identifies himself as Jesus the Christ. Oh, he implies it. He works it out. He lets the guys know. He agrees with them when they say it, all of that. But when he says, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, it's the only place where he self-identifies. It's about the gospel. It's about one spotless life. The life of the Son of God poured out for you, for me. Jesus here at the end of the line in earthly terms, knowing that there was uh, great joy. Hebrews 12, I love that. He says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And when he had made a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But here, again, it's about the relationship. That's what he's after. That's what he's after with every single living person. And he knows that not all will respond, but it is definitely his will that, that we do and that we walk in it. It's not just, you know, I made a decision back in summer camp when I was 16, and now I'm going to live the rest of my life the way I want to and call myself a Christian. Come on. No, it's about a life. It's about a relationship. It's about abiding in him. It's about the vine and the branches. All of those things we've been studying. Verse 4, I've glorified you on the earth, still praying to the Father here, and I've finished the work which you have given me to do. In John chapter 19, in a couple of chapters from here, he will say the same thing from the cross when he says to Telestai, it is finished. And when he said it was finished, folks, it was finished. I don't know about you, but there are times where I struggle with assurance. I struggle with, am I really accepted in the beloved? I struggle because, I mean, I'm human. And I, I sometimes I, I think, really, Lord, is it really finished? Yes, it's finished. It's done. If your life is in the beloved, he sees you as spotless. He sees you as perfect. Not because of you, but because of him. It's part of how he's glorified. He's glorified in my life. When he says to Telestai from the cross, it means it's paid in full. Rest in that. We sometimes struggle, uh, but it's finished. It, it, it's, it's done. He says, ask and you'll receive. The work is redemption. Colossians chapter 2. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. All? All means all. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In those days, if you owed a debt, somebody would come and they would take uh, uh, and plaster a parchment on your door that had the charges or the, the debt that you owed, the, the things that you'd done. And when he says that it was nailed to the cross, it's talking about your debt, my debt. And Paul here, encouraging the church at Colossae, is saying, he has taken that, and what they would do when that debt was paid is they would fold it in half and show a blank page. That would mean that the debt was taken care of, the debt was paid. And he says that he's taken it out of the way. 
the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There is no better news. If the basis of God's judgment is thoughts, words, and deeds, how far into the day do you get before you have sinned? Not very. For many or most of us, it might be before we even get out of bed. That's really good news. That's the gospel. That's how he's glorified. He's glorified in the fact that I can live a life that is free from guilt, free from shame, free from condemnation, free from my past. And I can look. I love that song. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. That's the God that we serve. That's the God of glory. Verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We saw just in the last chapter, in, in chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus said, I came forth from the Father, and I've come into the world. Again, I leave the world, and I go to the Father. He said, I'm going back where I came from. And he's saying that, He's saying, Lord, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. Before we created all that is, you, I, Scooty included, I want to come home. It's essentially what he's saying. There is a tone of homesickness to this. And in the garden, when he was sweating and when he was, there's actually some Greek wording in there that talks about, it's this same wording that could be used for homesickness. He was longing for home. In Micah chapter 7, we'll close with this. Verses 18 and 19, Micah writes prophetically, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. G. Campbell Morgan writes some things about this passage in, in, uh, in Micah 7. Uh, and he said this. He said, we see something every day that God cannot. You think, well, God is all seeing. Right? But we do indeed see something every day that God cannot. We see our equals. The Bible tells us that God is no respecter of persons. But this is what sets him apart. This is what makes him holy. He is separate from and above us. He is pure as relates to infinity. I know you can't, I can't figure that out anymore than I can figure out how big that star is. But I know that's part of what he created. And that's what makes this prayer of Jesus' different. It's not the Lord's Prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. Because he, being God the Son, praying to God the Father, has got it. Uh, in that framework, this is a prayer that's from God to God. But you want to know why it's prayed? For us. For you. For me. Timeless in its application, timeless, and that God would know, looking down through the ages, that we would be sitting here studying this passage this morning. And he would know that we need his love. We need his assurance. We need to know. We need to walk out of here knowing that our life is fully enveloped in his hand. Let's bow our heads before the Lord. If you don't know that this morning, if the Lord has touched your heart for the first time, I want to ask you, while I'm praying, while everyone's head is down, to look up and meet my eye. Is there anyone here that has never done business with Jesus and would like to enter into the relationship we've been talking about this morning? Anyone at all? If there's anybody here, perhaps the Lord's touched your heart, and you just need his power, his presence, his provision in your life. Perhaps you want to recommit your heart to him. 
You want to see that he's glorified by your life in ways perhaps he hasn't been. If that's where you're at, I'd like, for, I'd like to pray for you as well. Is there anybody here in that place? Okay, good. Anybody else? Anyone else? Father, uh, for each of us, those who have looked up, those who have not, we pray that you would indeed pour out your spirit on our lives. Lord, Lord you, you know our past. You know the roads we've traveled. You know uh, if our life has been marked by uh, glorifying you or not. And yet we know that on that cross that Jesus became the guilt offering, that we wouldn't have to suffer guilt, but that we would have the way paved and the way cleared for us to continually be coming to you, to be receiving your cleansing hand in our lives, and, and that we could walk fresh and current with you, without shame, without guilt, without any discomfort. And so I pray, Lord, that you would just work in us. And I pray for those who are hurting this morning. Lord, we, we pray together as a body that uh, you would just lift them up uh, again, that you would draw near. We pray for Woody, for his family. We pray for anyone else who's, who's hurting, whose life is just kind of upside down, that you would, being the God of all comfort, would draw near, and that, again, you'd pour out your spirit. We thank you for this morning. We love you uh, because you first loved us. We commit ourselves afresh to you, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you and keep you and give you a good day.